Hey everybody, so before we jump into today's podcast, I just wanted to A, thank you guys, give you a little bit of a reminder. If you enjoy this content, however you're watching it, consuming it, please like, follow, subscribe, whatever you gotta do, comment on it. If you can, leave us a review. It really helps us out and it can help grow our platform and reach more people. And if you know someone that can benefit from this, please share it with them. If you have a question, if you wanna reach out to us, let us know. And then lastly, we have all of our amazing programs, courses, and coaching available in the resources below. So check that out. Definitely take advantage of it. We have everything from free options all the way up to paid programs and everything in between to fit pretty much anyone's budget. And it's just a matter of how customized it's going to be based on the price point. So there's really something for everybody. Thank you guys. Let's get on into the episode. Yeah, fighters, what's going on, everybody? Another episode of the Life of a Fighter podcast. Before we jump into today's podcast, this episode and every episode is brought to you by the Life of a Fighter website. We have all of our awesome content on there from our Fitness Nutrition Vault to our free blog content to the podcast articles to YouTube videos and all that fun stuff. We also have our shop where you can check out all of our awesome products and services and get access to things that you normally wouldn't get access to. We have our awesome clothing line. You can check that out at LOF clothing.com we also have a link on our main website you can also check out more info about our coaching services by clicking the get started tab that's where you can check out a little bit more about some of the things that we offer you can put your information in I can touch base with you either get on the phone text or email have one of our coaches do it as well and talk about what the best program probably would be for you whether it's with us or somebody else just kind of getting you in that right direction and then also if you want to support the podcast or support those that support us you can check out below in our description we have all of our supporters we have other great ways to support the podcast to keep us going um, if you're interested in that and if not I just always like to say I appreciate you guys check us out on social media as well to get some more awesome exciting news and things going on our newsletter as well put your email in we'll get you going and yeah y'all let's jump into this podcast yeah fighters so I wanted to do something a little different this episode for a kind of presentation breakdown uh, and the topic specifically look at looking at athlete monitoring and some of the information that comes off of it, some things we can look at, what to basically do with that information once we've gathered it. And uh, Dr. Keith, I believe it's leading, I'm sorry if I butchered the last, I'm always bad with names, um, was the speaker for this topic at um, the NSCA North Carolina clinic that I was going to for some CEUs. And um, I really enjoyed this one, and I picked this one specifically because I think for our audience, whether you're an athlete or not, what he's talking about and the concepts behind it is really important. And I think it relates, especially right now with New Year's new me and kind of going into the new year with these goals and trying to crush it specifically in this first part that you'll hear after this um, he's talking about in the season breakdown some of the intensity and training ratios and the energy and then the risk of injury that gets associated with that and I think that obviously for athletes that's huge especially combat athletes that are there's no given season so you're kind of trying to play this in and out of camp thing and a lot of times if you're not staying in a, a kind of you're not using a GPP or a baseline to keep you in, in general physical kind of preparedness and in shape, then it's going to be a lot harder when you go into camp and the higher risk of injury kind of comes with that, if that makes sense. And that's not to say you don't want to create a certain foundation that you're not going to have higher intensity spurts. We obviously want a stress response, but what he even mentions too in this next kind of phase that you'll listen to or the next part of his uh, talk is 
looking at when we change the intensity and kind of how that impacts the risk of injury once you go past a certain load or, or certain past uh, deviation or amount or intensity level. Um, and then the way I kind of relate that for New Year's and fitness enthusiasts is especially if you're getting back into the gym and you haven't been in a routine, it's like going from no training whatsoever to five days a week. Risk of injury goes up, your burnout risk goes up, your risk of failure, and, and a lot of variations off that. So I think there's an interesting dynamic that, and there's kind of a parallel there if we look at it, um, whether you're an athlete or not. But specifically, you know, Dr. Keith is talking about athletes and data, and then in this next phase, you'll hear some of the things that they were looking at, whether it's football or other sports, and some of the intensity levels and variations and how to look at that. And I thought it was really cool the way he broke it down. Um, so, I, And what I want to try and do with this is kind of take little snippets, do some commentary on it, you'll listen to the audio, and then I'll break down the next phase. I'm curious to see how you guys like that. In the blessed to be here today because today I get to share with you a passion of mine, athlete monitoring. And with this athlete monitoring, I want all of you guys to go ahead and hold up your pens. If you have a pen, hold it up. In the other hand, if you have a piece of paper, I want you to hold that up. Congratulations. All of you now have the resources to start your athlete monitoring program. Alright. So, one of the primary reasons we need to start implementing these athlete monitoring programs is because of the fact that oftentimes coaches push our athletes too hard, too fast. We need to find a way to monitor and manage the training loads that the athletes are experiencing. The NCAA did a phenomenal study between 1988 and 2004 looking at over a million athletic exposures and track the injury incidents. And we can see that during this period of time, the greatest injury incidents occurs during preseason. That's when coaches try to push our athletes as hard as they can to get them into game-ready shape within that two to three week period. And you can see how injury incidents falls out. As we get into the in-season and off-season, coaches begin to back off. We're managing player fatigue during season as expected but it's that first preseason phase that is so detrimental or dangerous to our players. In addition to injuries, we need to monitor athletes to evaluate that dose-response relationship. As coaches, we induce a stress. We need to figure out how much stress they're receiving and how much rest they're gonna need in response to that training stress. So we use that to manage fatigue and if we're able to manage fatigue better, we're able to manage that injury risk. We can also use monitoring to evaluate our life stressors. So anything from sleep, nutrition, those sort of factors. We can also evaluate, evaluate the athlete's psychological readiness. Do they feel ready to train? Their willingness to participate? Those type of factors. We can also use athlete monitoring to evaluate athlete performance. Looking at the metrics in and out of the weight room. So at this point, I want you guys to do a, essentially a think-pair-share. I want you to write down on your sheets every metric that you think is valuable that influences an athlete's ability to perform on the day of the game. So we're going to take the first minute, write down as many vet metrics as you can think of that influence an athlete's performance. Give you that minute. Your participation. As I sit here and listen to you guys, I can hear some comments coming up. Things such as 
strength and power or endurance. Those factors all influence an athlete's ability to perform on a given day. Now, I'm not gonna go into those metrics because as a strength coach, you're probably collecting that information anyways. So I'm not gonna beat that to uh, death. What I wanna do is I've heard some of you mention workloads, training loads. So how do we go about quantifying the work the athlete is doing? So we're gonna start there, but I've also heard others mention the subjective questions. The sleep, the fatigue, the willingness to train, the muscle soreness. So we're gonna go there for the second part of the presentation. So with that being said, how are we going to go about quantifying this training stress? Those of you that are fortunate enough to work with swimmers, jumpers, runners, we can measure distance, training volume, how many meters, how many miles did we run or swim. Jumpers, purely number of reps. Those that work with throwing sports, we can look at the number of throws, or if you're more astute to baseball, there are different uh, pitches that are more stressful on the body. We can quantify each of these sports using the number of repetitions, the total distance, that sort of thing. Those of us that are in the weight room, the simple evaluation of volume load is that sets times reps times the intensity. That gives us how much work the athlete is doing, and that is usually indicative of how much fatigue that athlete experiences. All right. But when we get to our field and court sports, it gets more challenging because it's more difficult for us to quantify how much work the athlete has done. And that's when we come up with our rate of perceived exertion, that session rate of perceived exertion. Now, Dr. Borg presented the RPE scale that most of us are familiar with that ranges from seven to 20. That scale was originally used, or originally based off of that seven to 20 because if an athlete rates their RPE at a seven, their heart rate is roughly 70 beats per minute during that specific activity, all right? If it's a 13, it's 130 beats per minute. And it works out pretty accurately. Now, we have changed the scale, probably one for the fact that it's easier for athletes to rate the difficulty of a session on a one to 10 scale as opposed to a seven to 20. But instead of looking at the acute intensity of a training session, we're gonna look at the global intensity of a training session. And that's why we call it the session RPE. And we were able to uh, represent that with a one to 10 scale, 10 being of course the hardest thing the athlete has ever done, one being rest as you are doing now. So how do we collect this session RPE data? Easiest way, we're gonna need to get a volume of training and we're gonna need to get an intensity and that's gonna eventually calculate our total workload for the athlete. So our volume is a measure of time. Starting a stopwatch at the beginning of practice, setting it down, when we get done with practice, we stop the stopwatch. Or just taking note of when practice starts and ends. So we now have a duration. The next part is, according to Carl Foster, 30 minutes after our training sessions, we want to ask the athlete, again, globally, how was your training session? And we give them the one to 10 scale for them to rate the intensity of that entire session. Now, as the athletes are being exposed to this, we need to make sure that they understand their rating with global intensity to include warm-ups, water breaks, cool-downs, all of those other factors. Now, one of the caveats to this is that Carl Foster suggests 30 minutes of rest, or 30 minute delay between the end of practice and receiving those RPE scores. 
Unfortunately, that's not real practical. Our athletes take off to locker rooms, our athletes go home to go get something to eat. They all go different directions. So a lot of times, we've shortened that to essentially once they get done off the field, they're done with their cool down, take their boots off, before they walk off the field, we're collecting that RPE. Now I know it's not ideal because unfortunately, the athlete may be perceiving whatever they did at the end of practice to be what's most relevant <coughs> in their mind. So that could skew their numbers, but again, if we reiterate to them, look at the global workload or the global intensity. That's what we want them to evaluate. Now, once we've collected this data, we've got a whole bunch of RPEs, we've got a whole bunch of durations. We need to go to Excel. We need to dump this information into Excel so that we can start visually representing it, either in table format, as you see here, or in graphic format. So this is a hypothetical example of a football week where you can see the football training sessions, you can see the football weight room sessions, and then of course you can see the football game on Saturday with the one day mandated for the day off. While this is beneficial to put it in table format, it still doesn't necessarily give us the best representation of this information. This is where Excel is extremely valuable, where we can graph our information so that we can see exactly, one, how much work they're doing, where they're doing that work, and how that plays into our taper, essentially, to the football game on Saturday afternoons. All right. So we're taking this session RPE, putting it in Excel, and using Excel to plot this so we can see the training loads over time. How much work is the athlete doing on a daily basis? Now, I'm sure some of you are sitting back thinking, it's RPEs, it's subjective data. There are limitations with subjective data. We understand that. But if we don't have means to GPS, heart rate monitors, <coughs> session RPE is extremely valuable. We do have to acknowledge that the limitations are affected by the athlete's perception of how the training session was going, which means that an athlete's lack of sleep, lack of nutrition, uh, additional stress, other factors outside of training influence their perception, which can then give you erroneous or elevated uh, training loads. But if we're patient, if we give our athletes typically about two weeks to familiarize themselves with session RPE, they actually become quite reliable. So, what does the research suggest about session RPE? Now, session RPE has been correlated to heart rate training loads and catapult GPS training loads. And we can see strong positive correlations between heart rate training loads and catapult training loads using a pencil and paper test. We have Australian rules football, we have tennis, we have uh, swimming and diving, we have endurance sports, soccer, basketball. All of these activities show strong positive relationships with heart rate and GPS loads. And even with talking to a former employee from Catapult, there's roughly a 0.85 to 0.9 correlation between session RPE and player loads from GPS. So again, if we have a pencil and paper test that can give us valuable information, why not use it? Now these are just some of the studies, but because of its applicability across all of these different sports, it's likely applicable to the other ones that you guys may be working with. 
So why is this training load so important? Well, according to the research, these acute increases in training load explain 42% of illnesses and 40% of injuries. So when we have these acute spikes in training stress, we get increased injury risk, and that's essentially explained to an extent by that training load. All right. Now, in addition to that, these spikes in training load and a spike in acute to chronic workload ratio were negatively associated with <coughs> wellness scores or their quality of recovery. So if we have these big spikes in training stress or acute to chronic workload ratios, our recovery stress questionnaires or recovery scores go down, and that makes sense. So what is this acute to chronic workload ratio that I mentioned? Well, the acute to chronic workload ratio is a relationship between the most recent seven days of training compared to the last 21 days of training. All right. And it's essentially the acute load, the average of those seven days, divided by the average of the last 21 or sometimes 28 days, depending upon which articles you read. So in the example that I have here, you can see in the chart that there is an obvious increase in training stress, that training load for that week is roughly 700 units. The previous 21 days of training is around 498 or 500 training units. So we now have a disparity between the acute load and that chronic load. And essentially we're dividing the acute by the chronic. When we do that, we end up with a acute to chronic workload ratio of 1.42. Now again, this is an arbitrary units, but it gives you a value that looks at how much different is the acute training stress compared to the chronic training stress. Now, one of the limitations with acute to chronic workload ratio is the fact that you have to essentially collect data for 28 days before you can now start making decisions about the 29th day of training. That is one of the limitations. So with that being said, that we have to take that into consideration. Um, I will propose another idea at the end for an alternative way to get more information at a sooner rate, more sensitive rate, than waiting for acute to chronic workload ratio. But when you do plot this or track this over time, this is actually the acute to chronic workload ratio for our men's soccer team this year. You can see that we're essentially hanging out around that one level because we're not trying to improve performance during the season, we're trying to manage player fatigue. So we're hanging out right around that one range. Now, the typical recommendations for acute to chronic workload ratio are less than 0.8. The training is typically considered too light, or if you're using that for taper or peaking, then that would be appropriate. Typically between a one and 1.3 to 1.5 is the sweet spot where we want to sit with our acute to chronic workload ratio. And then depending upon the research you read, uh, depending, uh, 1.5 or two is essentially that upper threshold that we don't want to cross because that's when we increase the incidence of injury or that increase the risk of injury. Now to support that, um, we have one week of acute to chronic workload ratios that spike above that two level, we see an increased injury risk of about 16 to 17%. But it doesn't end there. Not only are the athletes at risk during that week, but the subsequent week, they have an increased risk of about 11%.
So that increased workload above a two for that acute clonic workload ratio impacts not only that week, but the following week and how the athlete responds to their training. Now, if it gets even worse, and we have two back-to-back -back weeks where the acute to chronic workload ratio is above a two, we increase the injury risk by about 28%. So again, that preseason time period where the coaches are pushing these athletes is when our athletes are at the greatest risk. Now, I've been talking about managing injury risk. We can also use acute to chronic workload ratios to improve athlete performance. If we apply gradual increases in training stress, get the athlete up to that 1.3, maybe 1.5 acute to chronic workload ratio, and try and keep our numbers there for weeks at a time, we are gradually increasing that player's stress, and that should allow the athlete to begin to improve fitness and handle these acute training loads with greater resiliency. So not only can we use it to manage performance, manage fatigue, we can use it to try and improve performance by, by applying the appropriate dose in our training. Now with this acute to chronic workload ratio, we can take it one step further, and that's looking at monotony and strain. Now training monotony is essentially how much variation do we have in our training programs. We want well, I guess we'll go back to our stimulus recovery adaptation process. As coaches, we provide a stimulus that the stimulus is designed to drive adaptation. But again, we don't get better during training. We get better during that rest and recovery period, which is why we taper. We need that taper, we need that rest in order to allow those adaptations stimulated during training to demonstrate themselves. So what we need to do is have hard training sessions followed by lighter training sessions to allow the athletes to recover and adapt before we apply that next training stress. So training monotony. When we actually calculate it, it is our weekly average divided by the weekly standard deviation. The basic recommendations when it comes to training monotony is 0.8 to 1.3 is kind of our sweet spot. And then we don't really want to go over that 1.5 to 2 because that's telling us that there's not enough variation in our training program. So yeah, that was, look at all that data that we can collect. That's awesome. And, and the information we can do with it, or I'm sorry, the, the ways we can apply that information. And basically, now we have those formulas, we can look at what we're observing. And I think not only for athletes where that carries over, but again, also for your fitness enthusiasts. What's, you know, your average workload, how many days a week, what's the intensity of your workout, high intensity, low intensity. That's where the conversation, I think, with other kind of coaches and, and, and fitness enthusiasts and things like that, talking about the intensity state, high intensity versus low intensity, um, knowing that time, the toll it takes, and the risk of potential burnout or injury in those variables associated with it. And try to put you in the best position possible, just so you optimize not just performance for athletes but for even fitness enthusiasts how do you optimize your training because you're investing time don't you want to get the most bang out of your your kind of time and out of your investment whether it's not just time financial investment of course too I think time is the most important one. So having a calculated plan, because that's what I think happens. A lot of times people go into the gym, they're psyched for a new goal in the year, and that's great. But do we have a plan? Cool. Now do we also have a plan 
that's realistic. That's honest. Be honest with yourself. Do you need accountability? Do you need, you know, more information? Do you have all the information that you need? And, and there's a lot of ways to get that. And I think it's cool the way Dr. Keith kind of broke that down. Again, I'm going to have a PDF um, available for our Fitness Nutrition Vault members. You can click on that below. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you didn't listen to any of the other info and other podcasts about it, basically... You can sign up and you get access to all this great stuff that's locked away in our vault that we just don't give access to the, the public. It's kind of more um, just not data-driven always. It's just a lot of information that um, took, honestly, a lot of work. So I just wanted to say thank you guys again for watching, listening, consuming that episode. If you guys enjoyed it and you haven't already, please like, uh, please comment. If you haven't reviewed, please leave a review. If you haven't followed or subscribed, please do that as well. Again, it tremendously helps us out. And then just a quick reminder, if you guys want more resources, we have them below. We have our programs, everything from free all the way up to paid and kind of everything in between dial in with the customization and we have more information on different programs and resources in our newsletter. So if you haven't signed up for that, do so below. It's free and that is it y'all. See you on the next one.